0: Welcome to the Ord Minute Podcast. Please note the information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs.
1: Welcome to the Ord Minute Podcast. Today, we're delving into an interesting area in terms of the global economy and investment markets, and that area is global emerging markets. Certainly an interesting and perhaps volatile time in investment markets generally, Um, but there's a lot going on in emerging markets. Sadly, the war in Ukraine and knock-on effects across the Eastern European region, the global economy. There are still COVID impacts across China in particular, and of course, inflation, energy costs, currency fluctuations are impacting all sorts of um, areas of the global economy. So we'll be discussing these issues and more. Um, and what they mean for the outlook, particularly uh, for someone who manages a portfolio of emerging market stocks. And our guest is one such person. Um, Amit Goel is the lead portfolio manager for the Fidelity Global Emerging Markets Fund. Welcome to the Ord Minute podcast.
0: Hey, good morning, Nick.
1: So we're going to talk through some of those issues. We're going to get your um, outlook um, on on global emerging markets and also how you're positioning your portfolio. But for a little bit of context, and I guess particularly those who are new to emerging markets, when we talk about emerging markets, what do we mean? What are the big exposures in the global emerging market area? So
0: emerging market as as I see them is a, is a is a bunch of companies and countries and regions which I believe are at a very different stage of evolution both economically as well as socially. So so I, I, I sincerely think that emerging market is a very loosely defined term. You have lots of countries and companies to choose from. Uh, and, and that's why I, I always think that emerging market remains a very high active area for our clients and, and investors.
1: In broad terms, when we think about emerging markets, what are the attractions for investors and for portfolio managers such as yourself?
0: So as I said, there are there are very different areas across emerging markets. So if you talk about at a top-down level, we always thought that emerging markets are, are high growth economies. You have China, which has been growing at high single digit for, for last 20 years. You have India, which everyone believes can structurally grow for, for the next 10, 15 years at, at mid to high single rate. But the way we see emerging market is break down emerging markets in different pockets of opportunities. So the biggest opportunity that we see in emerging markets still emerging market consumer. Uh, you have world's two largest populous countries in China and India, where where different part of consumer market is still growing. When you talk about China, you have the upper middle class and the rich consumer, which is going to grow many folds in next 10 years. Similarly, when you talk about India, you have the middle and upper middle class of India, which is again going to grow many folds in next 10 years. So we are talking about a huge 2 billion consumers which are going to grow, consume more and more products and services, which we believe is the largest opportunity that you see across emerging markets. The next pocket that you see is technology. There are companies across emerging markets, especially in North Asia, in Korea and in Taiwan and in China, which we believe are becoming globally competitive technology companies both in semiconductor and industrial technology. And these companies will keep on taking more and more global market share as consumers and enterprises are are using more technology in their daily lives. So we believe consumer technology are the two very important pockets of, of opportunities across emerging markets. But you have to invest at the right time in the right companies to get benefit of those opportunities. And lastly, I would say we have already seen sectors like materials and commodities doing well in last 12, 18 months. And again, there are pockets of competitiveness in emerging markets on commodities, especially a commodity like copper, where we believe that the long-term demand supply situation remains very strong. And you have emerging market companies in Latin America and Africa, which are the lowest cost producer of copper globally. So again, there are are pockets of great opportunities, long-term growth, we are focused on consumer technology and very specific commodities.
1: Okay. So, as we said at the, the top, there's a lot of um, issues going on in the world at the moment, and um, I'm keen to understand how some of those issues impact the emerging market economies. So, if we think about inflation and interest rates, Armit, historically, things like inflation have impacted Um, emerging markets to a greater extent. And I think you yourself have previously described uh, some emerging markets as having a fragility when we're talking about these issues. How are those issues playing out now in terms of inflation and uh, interest rates in emerging markets from your perspective?
0: Yeah, as you rightly said, inflation has always been a big driver of emerging market volatility. Historically, what we have seen that emerging markets have been have been having higher inflation than the developed market, um, given the fact that government financials are weak and, and their ability to control inflation has always been lower. But this time we see a slightly different picture versus history. What we see today is that inflation, while it remains high than history, even in emerging markets, but it's a bigger developed market issue. Inflation is at close to 10% in developed market, and it's expected to come down, but it continues to move up. While in emerging market, you see different picture across emerging markets. Large part of emerging markets, especially China, Taiwan, Korea, in North Asia, you see inflation at low single digit and very much controlled. In South Asia, like India and Indonesia, you have seen inflation moving to mid to high single digit. And in parts of emerging markets outside Asia, you have seen inflation going to double digit levels. But what is different this time is also that emerging markets have been ahead of interest rate curve versus the Fed. You have seen interest rates moving to double digit outside Asia, in Latin America, in South Africa, and you have seen interest rate being more stable in parts of Asia where in, where inflation is more controlled. So I would say in terms of fragility, emerging markets are less fragile because either they are managing inflation better or they have been ahead in interest rate curve. And that gives us a lot of comfort, both on the economic growth and management of inflation, but also management of currencies, where EM currencies have behaved better than what we have seen them doing in
1: history. Okay, so a related area is food and energy inflation. How are they um, uh, impacting emerging markets and, and where are the risks around some of those two volatile issues?
0: So food and energy is a very important part of emerging market consumer basket. Across markets like India, China, Indonesia, food and energy forms anywhere between 40 to 60% of consumer markets. So it's a very important element and, and it affects every emerging market consumer. But the picture is different with respect to food and energy. When you talk about food, Large part of emerging market are self-sufficient on food. So food inflation till now has not been impacting them as high as it has impacted the developed market consumer. India is self-sufficient on food. It imports some food food grains and oil, but but largely self-sufficient on large commodities like wheat, rice, sugar, etc. Similarly, China is very much self-sufficient on a lot of food products. And that's where you have seen food inflation being contained in, in these economies. And they are very much concerned on food security. So you have seen more and more trade barriers being created on soft commodities within emerging markets. But when you come to energy, the picture is slightly different. A lot of emerging markets, barring Middle East, are net importer of energy. And higher energy prices have impacted or will impact emerging market consumer in these economies, especially markets like India, where energy imports are almost 5% of GDP. Energy prices have gone up by 30-40%, in some cases, more than 50%. And it is going to impact GDP by 2-3%. Right now, what we see across emerging market is that mostly governments are absorbing these costs. So these costs have not been passed on to consumer. Largely, electricity prices have been controlled in India, in China. Fuel prices have been controlled to some extent. But if energy prices continue to remain high, you will see something will give up. Either government finances will give up, which will further raise intre- inc- result in increase in interest rates, or you will see an impact on consumer growth. So in my view, Food inflation is there, but it's 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 manageable in emerging markets. But energy inflation is something which can actually impact emerging markets more. And you would need a lower energy price in the next 6-12 months for emerging market consumer to remain strong.
1: Yeah. Okay. So we want to get to um, your portfolio and how you're positioning things in your personal outlook. But just one last issue, and it's a big issue for emerging markets, and that is China. So the property market is, is soft in China and the consumer is slowing down. What's, what's your personal view on how China makes it through the next couple of years in terms of economic growth and impact on that emerging market region?
0: So China's situation is very interesting right now. Uh, and China has behaved very differently in the last two years than the rest of emerging markets. If you talk about 2020, when COVID started, China actually was first in and first out of COVID. So China was the best performing emerging market in 2020. China problems started in 2021 with tightening of the fiscal situation in early 2021. And then we started to see property slow down and trouble with some of the large private developers in middle of 2021. And we saw a very steep decline in property market in second half of 2021. It was declining 20%. We saw a lot of regulatory impact on large companies in 2021 as well, especially your large internet companies, which also resulted in consumer slowdown in, in, in fourth quarter of 2021. And now with COVID and zero COVID policy, we have seen a further slowdown in consumer. So China is going through a, a very strange scenario where both property as well as consumer is slowing down in 2022. And I think they're they're going to find it very tough to grow uh, as expected to their target of 5% GDP growth. I would be very surprised if China is is, is growing at even 3-4% this year. But my belief is that, that in, in 2023, China can see stabilization of property market because it has already gone down from a level of 100% to 80% with a 20% decline. And China will have some sort of exit strategy from COVID. They're not going to give away the zero COVID policy. So we will continue to see these periodical lockdowns in in large cities because China will stick to its zero COVID policy. But at some point of time, we should be looking at an exit from COVID with a better efficacious vaccine, higher vaccine acceptance, as well as Probably a milder variant of 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 virus. So while you will see a very tough 2022 in China, but I think 2023 is going to be a better year for the country. And that's where you can you actually see a lot of opportunities in China, where markets have already come down, and and you see more investable opportunities in the country.
1: Okay, so there's some of the key issues. Um, getting to the outlook, um, Amit, you spend uh, most of your time as a portfolio manager min- visiting and speaking to companies all around the world in the in the key emerging markets. You're pouring over uh, macroeconomic data. Distill it down for us. What's your personal view on the outlook for emerging market economies, and and what are the sort of key attractions within that broader view?
0: So, if you think about em- emerging market, and as I said at the start, it's a very heterogeneous asset class. You have different countries, different sectors at different point in time in evolution, different penetration of consumer. I think if you think about top down, there are, there are three long-term drivers for investing in emerging market as, if, as I see today. Uh, first, emerging market economies will continue to grow faster in real terms versus developed market economies. That has happened in last 10 years as well. And, and and investors can argue that emerging markets still underperform developed market. But I think that that underlying economic growth driver still stays even with China slowing down. But the se- second very important driver of, of I think investing in emerging market is that you have got more competitive businesses than you had in history in emerging markets. Whether you talk about technology, whether you talk about consumer, whether you talk about industrials and materials, you have more competitive business from to benefit from the underlying economic growth. And I think that makes investing in emerging markets much, much better than what we have seen in history. And the third very important driver of of investing in emerging market today is valuations. Now today, valuations both on an absolute basis as well as on a relative basis is at its lowest level in last 20 years. So your starting point is a continued better growth in real terms a more competitive set of companies to invest in, and and a much better valuation than than what you have seen in industry, you know that's that's from a top down level, but as investors we are always focused on investing in right businesses bottom up, and and there are pockets of good opportunities in emerging markets that we see today, and that reflects in in our portfolio positioning as well. Uh, We like the technology sector, especially semiconductor and industrial technology companies across Taiwan, Korea, and China. We believe these companies have become more globally competitive. They're increasing their global market share, and they will continue to take global market share and grow profitably. We are very much interested in uh, uh, high-end Chinese consumer uh, as as they're going to grow from 200 million to 600 millions, threefold in 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 next next 10-15 years, and there are products and services they will continue to use more and more, and and we are focused on what kind of brands, what kind of services they are going to use. Similarly, we are we are very much interested in Indian middle class and upper middle class in India, uh, which are which is again going to grow, use more products and services as they as they consume more discretionary items, and and we are invested in very specific businesses that benefit from this trend. So I think from a top down level you have you have right set of companies, good growth, right valuation from a bottom up you have these pockets of opportunities in emerging market which 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 gives us a I think a very optimistic view in emerging markets in medium to long term.
1: Okay, so let's um, give us a brief overview of the sort of companies that you um, like to invest in or your investment process and how that leads to the kind of businesses that you um, invest in.
0: So I, let me give you a few examples, a uh, couple of them in, in China and a couple of them in India, where we have invested. Uh, so we have invested in a Chinese sportswear brand called Leaning. Uh, it has been in the portfolio for very long. Uh, it has added a lot of value to our clients. Um, and and we got it very early in the portfolio when this company was uh, kind of not in eyes of a lot of investor as it was growing and changing its culture. So this is a company which used to sell shoes and apparel, sportswear to to Chinese consumer, uh, largely at the middle and the lower end. So so their average selling price was anywhere between $25 to $50. And and that's where they were targeting lower and middle end Chinese consumer, while the upper end consumer in China continues to use global brands like Nike, Adidas, Puma, etc. But what we have seen in last five years that this company has been able to elevate its brand both on the sneaker side as well as functional shoes side, and it has started to sell shoes at higher price points. Um, they have they have started to sell shoes at hundred to two hundred dollar price point, which is the price point which global companies sell at. So, with this brand elevation, the of a, a large market has been opened for this company. They were only targeting fifty percent of the market earlier. Now they are targeting hundred percent of the market. They are at 7% market share in an industry which is growing 10, 12 on its own. We believe this company can go from 7% market share to double-digit market share. We continue to monitor their brand, how consumers like their brand. We continue to talk to consumers. We continue to talk to their distributors, competitors. And and our belief is that they can continue to gain market share and this this company can still continue to compound at double-digit. So these are are self-sustaining businesses driven by real competitive advantages that we own. Similarly, if, if I go to India, uh, we are we are invested in a business called Havels, which is uh, one of the largest domestic consumer electronic business in the country. So they sell uh, fan ceiling fans, they sell water heaters, they sell air purifiers. They've acquired a brand called Lloyd, which sells air conditioners and, and refrigerators. If you think about Indian consumer, the penetration of consumer electronics, whether you are talking about kitchen appliances, whether you talk about white goods like air conditioners and refrigerators, the penetration remains very low. And as Indian middle class continues to grow and become richer and and go from $2,000 disposable income to $5,000 disposable income, you will see them investing more in their home, in consumer electronics, in experiences. And we believe that this is the right business to own to capture that trend. It's a very strong management team. They have created organic businesses. They have allocated capital nicely. And this is a business which can keep on growing double digit for next 15 to 20 years. So again, right management team at the right time in the cycle in the right consumer segment within the country. And that forms the basis of most of the businesses that we own in the portfolio.
1: Okay. And just in terms of the portfolio characteristics, how uh, much turnover is in the portfolio? How uh, long do you typically hold some of these, um, you know, good performing businesses that you speak of?
0: So our idea is to own them forever. Uh, if we think these businesses are, are run by the right people, who we can trust with our client capital they are in industries which can keep on growing at, at good rate for next 10, 15 years with the right fundamentals. We can keep on owning them uh, at a price which makes sense in the portfolio. When we buy any business, we typically buy with a three to five year time horizon. Um, our, we are very much absolute return focus. So we want to buy businesses which we believe can compound at double digit US dollar rate for our clients. So every business that we buy on a three to five year time horizon, we think it can double in that time horizon to give us that double digit absolute return rate. And that also reflects into the turnover of por- our portfolio. Our t- the turnover of our portfolio is typically 25 to 30%. So 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 that reflects into our, our, our holding duration of three to five years. And this also means a lower turnover cost for our clients in emerging market, which is especially you can see tight liquidity here and there and, and trading costs are generally higher than, than what you see in developed markets.
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, earlier you mentioned energy costs as being um, perhaps a risk, you know, clearly to the global economy, but emerging market economies in particular. Um, and you've outlined some of the areas where you see an attraction, technology, China, India. And some of those stocks, where are the, the sectors or countries where you think there are elevated risks and things that you're avoiding in particular at the moment across emerging markets?
0: So, so I think the, the risk that we avoid in emerging markets are, are at, at two levels. Uh, first I think uh, we, we avoid regulatory risks, uh, especially in countries like China. Uh, we think that regulation is always part and parcel of, of the Chinese economy, uh, given, given uh, the political and the social setup of the country. Any large business in, in that country which uh, interacts with millions of people on a daily basis, which is very large business, utility kind of a business for the society, any business which sells content, whether it's education, whether it's gaming, etc., it will always be regulated, and it will have a very high regulatory oversight. And we have generally been avoided these businesses. So I think any businesses which we think are are impacted by government regulations, and a lot of them comes out of uh, markets like China, we we would generally avoid. Uh, a large part of emerging markets also have businesses which are which are owned by governments. Um, we in our philosophy, we always think that uh, a government-owned business in most of the cases, uh, puts minority shareholder at a lower priority. Uh, They always put society, um, government um, uh, objectives at a a higher priority, which is not in line with minority shareholders. So we are very generally averse to owning government-owned businesses, which happens to be in sectors like financials, telecom, etc., across emerging markets, especially in oil and gas as well. Uh, so so that's that's another area that that we have avoided. Uh, within commodities we we, we avoid uh, uh, commodities like like coal, iron ore, uh, which we believe uh, um, can be can be tight tough commodities in in, in longer term. Uh, so a lot of businesses that we avoid in emerging markets would be around our concerns on corporate governance and regulations. Uh, which we believe are are will impact the long-term value creation in these businesses. Uh, uh, so, so our focus is largely on businesses that we that we think are are very much aligned to minority shareholders.
1: So uh, there we go. There we have uh, global emerging markets with Fidelity International. Amit Goel uh, has stated the long-term drivers of emerging markets with faster uh, growth in real terms, more competitive businesses than ever before, and valuations. Uh, The best that they've been for 20 years across global emerging markets and the pockets of opportunities at the moment include technology, include uh, consumer exposures in China, as well as the Indian middle class. And as you've just heard, some risks around energy and governance and regulation, but clearly Um, trying to avoid uh, the worst of those in terms of portfolio construction. Um, Fidelity's range of funds uh, do include the Global Emerging Markets Fund, a strategy that comes in an active ETF version listed on the ASX under the ticker FEMX. This is the fund uh, for which Amit is the lead portfolio manager, and the fund is also part um, of the Value multi-asset portfolio. So the easiest way to get more information on Fidelity and its range of funds is to obviously speak to your um, advisor, or you can visit the Ord Minute website um, or the Fidelity website, fidelity.com slash funds. Amit, thank you very much for your time. Amit Goel from Fidelity International.
0: Thanks, Nick. Uh, pleasure to be here. You have been listening to the Ord Minute podcast. The information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. You should not rely on general advice without making your own inquiries or your own assessment about the suitability of the financial products or services mentioned.